Thank you, Blake. Uh, beautiful songs. Love that last song you taught us. Wow, what a song. And uh, I think it does in many ways uh, give some reflections on what we're going to be looking at, not just today, for a few more weeks as we look at uh, our continued series on journey life, lessons from Old Testament people of faith, and we're in the book of Job. Last week, one of the things that I introduced is that Job is in the part of the Old Testament that Jews call the writings. It's the latter part in the way they divide up their Bible. It's in the uh, poetic section. Uh, in fact, the book of Job is almost all poetry. Uh, the first two chapters are prose, uh, are prose. The last half of the book, chapter 42, is prose. The rest of it is poetry. And, and, of course, you look at it and you go, it doesn't look like poetry to me. Yes, it's hard to translate Hebrew poetry into English. That just doesn't work really well. But it's poetry. But it's also wisdom literature. It's one of three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And, and those three books operate differently. It's very important that you see this. The book of Proverbs is about the moral principles that should guide the world. That's what the book of Proverbs is about. Basically, what God says in that book is that if you're wise, you'll do what God wants you to do, beginning with fearing Him, and God will bless you. On the other hand, if you're foolish, you'll resist what God wants you to do, and your life will end up ruined. Basically, it works like this. For instance, if you're hardworking, if you get up early in the morning, if you work real hard, if you, if you labor late into the evening, if you store up, when you get older, you'll have something to live on. Whereas if you're foolish and you're lazy, you'll sleep in, you'll say it's raining today, or maybe there's a wild animal out there that might bite me if I go out into the field, and the next thing you know, you starve to death because you haven't laid up anything for the future. All right? Foolish versus wise. Book of Ecclesiastes is written to say, yes, that's the general rule, but it doesn't always work, always work that way. We live in a fallen world. And, and so Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, I've, I've seen in this world of vanity, this meaningless world, I've seen the wicked prosper, and I've seen the righteous suffer. What's up with that? I mean, why does that happen? And we've all seen those exceptions. A lot of us think that the book of Proverbs is kind of this absolute truth. It's not. You know, bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. I love that. But sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes we look at our children and go, what did I do wrong? And the answer is, you didn't do anything wrong. Yes, but I, I thought I raised them, and, and now they've gone astray. Sometimes the rule doesn't always work. And then the Holy Spirit gave us Job to say, can I give you a really, really hard case of that? Can I show you someone that, I mean, you just read it and you go, something here is not right. And then try to at least think about the questions that raises. And that's what you have in the book of Job. Begins in chapter 1 with this man named Job. He lives in the land of Uz. We're not quite sure where that is. It's somewhere in the east. He's upright. He's blameless. He feared God. He shunned evil. He was wealthy beyond belief. 
he, he had a great family, seven sons, three daughters, and he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. But then you have scene two of where the text then very quickly moves from earth up to heaven, and you have the heavenly council, and Stan talked about that last week, did a fantastic job of where God is in his court, and the heavenly beings are coming around him, and among those who are up there is one called the Satan. Now, unfortunately, most of our translations translate this as an individual heavenly being. It, it, it's a title. It's a description. It simply means the opposer. Or in the case of a legal court, which a lot of this has a legal court feel to it, is the prosecuting attorney. And so the prosecuting attorney shows up and, and the Lord says to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright and he fears God and he shuns evil. And the prosecuting attorney says, Yes, judge. But does he do that for nothing? Have you not built a hedge around him and blessed his family and everything he does? If you'll reach out your hand and strike him, he will curse you to your face. And God says, all right, it's on. And he basically says to the prosecuting attorney, you can do anything to him you want to. You just can't touch his body. And so all at once, his whole world caves in. In one day, all of his oxen... Donkeys are stolen, lightning hits his sheep, kills 7,000 of them. Chaldeans steal all of his camels. And the next thing you know, a, a tornado, a windstorm comes along, hits his oldest son's house and kills seven sons and three daughters all in one day. And of course you're like, how's Job going to respond? And his response is, he got up, he tore his robe, he shaved his head. These are all signs of mourning. Okay, he goes into incredible grief, but then he worships. And in his worship, he simply says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And at this point, you go, Yes, God won. God was right. The prosecuting attorney, they Satan, he, he wasn't right. Only problem is, this is chapter 1 of 42 chapters. And, and, and so you have to move now to round 2. And round 2 occurs in, in the second chapter as, again, you go back into heaven and there you have this heavenly council again and the Lord looks at the Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. And he still maintains his integrity. Even after you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. Now, there's all kinds of questions that are raised with this conversation. And we're not going to tackle those today. But you need to realize that the book of Job is poetry. And, and in poetry, you, you have all of these exaggerations. You have to realize that. You can't read the book of Job like you'd read a historical book. It doesn't work that way. This is poetry intended to teach a lesson on wisdom. And so please keep that in the back of your head as you sometimes scratch your head and go, what in the world is going on here? The Satan, the prosecuting attorney, fires back. Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. Stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and bones, and he'll surely curse you to the face. And God looks at him and says, all right, he's yours. You can't kill him. You can't take his life. But he's yours. And boy, out he went. And boy, he hit Job with awful, look at these 
painful sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. I, I don't know what the Satan did. I don't know if he gave him a bad case of shingles. I've never had shingles, but I've been around people who have. And they'll tell you, I mean, when you get a bad case, it's bad. You can't get any relief. Or, or I remember as a kid one time, mother taking me to the doctor on Sunday of all days because she thought something was bad wrong. And the doctor looked at me and said, he's got poison oak. But I had it all over me. Have you ever had poison oak, poison ivy, and, and you're sitting there trying not to scratch? And you can't, you can't do it? No matter how hard you try, you're like, no, you know. I mean, look at Job. He took a piece of broken pottery and he's scraping himself with it. And you're like, what in the world? He's doing it because he, he can't stop. His wife comes and looks at him and says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says, sweetheart, you flip sides. You're talking like someone who's foolish, not like someone who's wise. Shall we accept good things from God and not trouble? And, and, and so he sits there and he says, no. And then the book does something amazing. It, it, it basically describes him losing all of this and then what happened as a result. I mean, losing chapter 1 is wealth. He loses his children. Chapter 2, he loses his health. And now he's lost his wife. I mean, he's lost everything. And he's sitting there and you're like, so what's going to happen now? And the answer is, he's got three friends. And, and you look at the three friends up here. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. I mean, I looked at that and I thought, they must have been from Mississippi. Wow, what names. Sounds like some I grew up with. And they hear about Job and they decide we need to go and we need to sympathize and we need to comfort him. And the book of Proverbs tells us something about friends that you need to read if you're going to think about this right here. This is Proverbs 18. One who has unreliable friends. I mean, when your friends are unreliable, guess what? They're not going to be helpful. But he says, on the other hand, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother or a sister. I mean, if I were to ask you right now, who's that friend in your life? That friend you could call up 24 hours a day, no matter what's going on, and he or she would be at your side immediately. I've got a brother and a sister. But I also have people who are as dear to me and as close to me as they are. I mean, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, so I know what it's like to have a friend to show up. And so these friends come and, and, and they show up. And here's the sad part. When they get close, and, and of course I can see them going to the house and Job's wife saying, he's out there, he's in the ashes, he's pitiful. And they, they get close to him. And when they see him, they hardly recognize him. Have you ever done that? I, I have on several occasions. I have walked into hospital rooms going to visit someone who's been sick and literally walk in, look at the patient in the bed and turn around to walk out because I thought I was in the wrong room. I mean, that's how bad they looked. And I've had them go, hey, Les, come on in. And I'm like, whoa. That's what they did. And when they saw him, they wept. 
if you've never done that, that's one of the most helpless feelings in the world. To see someone that you love, someone who's your friend, and to see what they're going through, and you just, I mean, it just pours out of you. And not only did they weep, but, but they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust to be like Job. And then they sat down on the ground for seven days and didn't say a word. I want you to look at that. They sat down for seven days and no one said a word. As they're trying to figure out what to say. And as Job is just absolutely going through torture. And then in chapter 3, it begins with these words. After this... Job opened his mouth. Seven days had passed with his friends. We don't know how many before that. But seven days had passed. And, and you got you to be wondering, what in the world is he going to say? And what's he been thinking about? And I want to suggest to you, you know, that when you think about what in the world has he been doing, what has he been thinking, and what has his friends been thinking, and I think the answer is he's been trying to process what had happened. Brian can speak to that well. That whenever something happens to us tragically, we have to process it. And sometimes it takes a long time to process it. Uh, I have, you know, I, I tell people all the time that when you're a minister in the church, uh, if you quit every time on Monday that you felt like quitting, you wouldn't be at a church any length of time. I mean, so, sometimes as, as a preacher, you could just have bad days. And, and I know that in, in my own experience, whenever I experience something like that, I cannot make a decision within the first 24 hours. If I do, I'll make the wrong one every single time. I've got to process it. And June will tell you that she knows when I'm processing I, I grow flowers. I have a flower garden out in the backyard. I, I love daylilies in particular. And June oftentimes will look out there and I'll be out there with a hoe and I'll be just chopping like mad. And June, I'll walk in and she'll say, well, have you, have you solved the problem yet? No. Uh, I know it may be a little bit better. I, that's how I process things. I mean, I get in the car and I talk to myself. I mean, I'm going down the road just arguing back and forth. I should have said this. If I just said this, they would have probably responded this way. And I'm sure people that pull up beside me go, ooh, that guy's messed up. You, know, you have to process things. And so in chapter 3, what you have is Job having processed what he was thinking. And, and he shares it. The Holy Spirit shares it with us. And it's some of the hardest reading in all the Bible. Y'all, this is gut-wrenching. I mean, this is absolutely, I mean, it just rips your heart out as you sit there and you look at Job and he says, can I just tell you what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling? He begins with this. He said, I cursed the day I was born. I cursed the day I was born. My birthday was this last week. Uh, I was born on... February, Friday, February 13th. You know, people are like, wow, yeah, that explains a lot. But, but February 13th, and can I just tell you that, that my birthday wasn't this way? I mean, I didn't curse the day. I had cards from so many of you. Thank you so much. Posts on Facebook, texts sent to me early in the morning, all the way to late at night. I mean, emails. I mean, thank you. 
thank you for the encouraging words. That wasn't the case with Job. I mean, the text says, after this, Job. And look at the way the word day is, is listed there. It just kind of, if you highlight it, it jumps out. He cursed the day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Wow. Yeah. Listen to a little bit more of it. If you would, try to feel it. This is not something you process just intellectually. You've got to process it right here. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year. Just strike February 13th off the calendar. Treat it like February the 30th. I know some of y'all are thinking there is no February 30th. That's the point. May it not be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. No births. No cries. No mothers holding an infant, celebrating, and a dad, you know, excited because a son or a daughter has been born. May those who curse days curse that day. I'm like, wow, I didn't know there were people that cursed days. He then said, wished I died at birth. I wished I died at birth. And and again, you, you feel his anguish. He says there, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why couldn't that have happened? If you listen to the rest of what he says here, I mean, I understand someone, well... If you've ever had a loved one to get to the end of their life and they're suffering horribly, I mean, you you, you just like, wow. And I've been there when people said, why won't God just let me die? Well, Job's feeling that. For now, I would be lying in peace. I'd be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves palaces now lying in ruins with rulers who had gold who filled their houses with silver. He said, at least in death, there the wicked cease from turmoil and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there and the slave is freed from his master. I mean, Job is just absolutely, just, it's boiling out of him. And his three friends are listening. And then he began to ask some incredibly difficult questions. Questions that many of us have asked. And in fact, you may be asking them right now. I mean, God, what in the world is going on? Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Why in the world does the sun come up when you have just had a miserable night of suffering? Why is light given to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they do reach the grave? I don't know how many times my mother, when I'd go see her, 
My dad had died many years earlier, and I'd go down, and Mom would say, why didn't the Lord take me? And I'd try to make a joke out of it. He's not right, quite ready for you up there yet, Mom. You know, It's going to take him a while to get ready. And when my mom finally did pass, her best friend came to the funeral home, and the first thing she said to me and my brother and sister when she walked in the doors is, your mom finally got her wish, didn't she? Job was wishing, why can't I just die? I mean, why does light come to those who wish they could die, but they don't? Why is life given to a man whose life is hidden, whom God, and now you see him starting to really crack, whom God has hedged in? John, in his reading in the Psalms, talked about God hedging us in, but that was hedging us in in a good way. This is not in a good way. The message put it this way. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense and when God blocks all the roads to meaning? In other words, when you're sitting there trying to say, God, what is going on? And God remains silent. For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. And then, boy, this is the part that... I mean, if you can't feel this, because I think all of us have at least thought it, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. The name of God translation translates this way. I have no peace. I have no quiet. I have no rest. And trouble just keeps coming. And at this point, you think, where in the world are his friends? And they show up. I mean, you you start chapter 4, then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, The only problem is, what kind of friends were they going to be? Are they going to be the foolish friends? Are they going to be the wise friends? And by the way, the very fact that they spoke probably tells you they're going to be the foolish friends. And that's exactly what they were. And for the next 23 chapters, chapter 4 through 26, it is his three friends trying to tell him what he's doing in his life wrong and Job trying to defend himself and saying, but that's not true. And I mean, it's just one gut punch after the other gut punch after the other gut punch from friends. Here's his friends. His wife's turned from him. His children are dead. His wealth is gone. His health is gone. And now his friends are his enemies. They are the Hasatan. I was thinking about that, Stan. After last week, I thought they are the opposers. I mean, that's what's happened to him. I call it friendly fire. I mean, one of the things, if we can draw from this early section, and by the way, you start looking and you say, is there hope here? There's hope, but you're going to have to wait a while. But one of the lessons we can all learn is that sometimes we as friends need to be careful of friendly fire because that's what Job's friends did. Number one, speaking when we need to be quiet. I was talking to a lady as her her dad was being buried. And I was I was trying to talk in order to bring comfort. 
I mean, they're literally filling in the grave. And she finally turned to me and she said, I don't mean to be rude, but can you just quit talking? I've got a lot to think about. And boy, I tell you, I, I apologize. I said, I am so sorry. I mean, I've made that mistake. One of the worst mistakes you can make is trying to say something when the best thing you can do is just be there. Chris had never been to the hospital when someone had just died. I walked down to his office and I said, listen, we've just lost a church member. He just died over at Skyline. I want you to go with me as we go and try to comfort the daughter. And we got in the car and we started driving the three miles to Skyline and he said, Les, I, I don't know what to say. And I said, don't say anything. Just watch. Because sometimes the best gift we can give anybody is just our presence. Just an arm around them. Just being there to... to and, and, and if they ask us a question, yes, answer. But so many times I've seen godly people think that they've got to say something just like I did out there at the grave when the best thing I could have done is just kept my mouth shut. Number two, assuming our experiences are their experiences. You know, support groups are good as long as they're voluntary. You know, I mean, if, if, if you are in a support group, then you probably have the same experiences as the other people have there, and you may be willing to at least share those experiences and hope you can learn from it. But listen, when people are trying to force you into that, it's not helpful. And oftentimes, well, you know, I lost a loved one. Just because you've lost a loved one doesn't mean you've lost the loved one in the same way they have. Our experiences are not the same. And so moving cautiously here is so very, very important. His three friends thought they had the answer. They didn't. And Job kept trying to tell them, you're wrong. But they wouldn't listen. And then number three, offering advice that hurts instead of helps. Again, oftentimes we think we know the answer to the question. Their three friends thought they knew the answer to the question. And at the very end of the book, God says, you were wrong. You spoke unjustly about me. Job did not. And so sometimes we just need to be so cautious, so careful. And so, you know, the question is, then what do we do? Bill Withers, songwriter, singer, uh, basically in the early 70s, came out with an album. It was his second album. And he wrote a song called Lean On Me. If, if we... If you heard it right now, at least if you've ever listened to the radio very much, you'd probably go, oh yeah, I've heard that song. He passed away four years ago. But what's interesting about that is J.P. Morrow said in an article he wrote that Lean On Me is the most secular Christian song ever written. And I love that. I mean, it wasn't a religious song. But, but Withers would talk about how that he was at a prison one day and he was walking through the corridors and people didn't know who he was. And, and the prison choir was in there. And guess what they were singing? Lean on me. And when he would go to school with his grandkids, his grandkids would say, Hey, Papa, could you just sing that song? And he would sing his song to the elementary school kids and they would join in singing with him. And what's so precious about it is the chorus. I mean, it's a beautiful song, but listen to the chorus. Lean on me when you're not strong. 
and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For, and here's the part you need to remember, it won't be long till I'm going to need someone to lean on. Now, if you're thinking, but last, what if your friends are Eliphaz, Bilhad, uh, Bildad, and, and Zophar? Yeah, I get that. But hopefully we can be the kind of friends, well, listen to what Jesus said. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Sometimes we need to realize we need to be like Jesus. We need to be friends who are willing to go all the way. He went all the way to the cross as a friend of ours. That's how much he loved us. Let's love one another the same way. By the way, if you don't know Jesus as your friend... Maybe you're going through something right now that you're just throwing up your hands and you say, God's hemmed me in from all sides. Maybe it's time to turn to the one friend who will always be true to you. His name is Jesus. And if we can help you, let us know how we can right now as we stand and sing.